God-given, and it's all day. It's never been tropical in the squeeze. They make money or on excessive materialism and militarism. We know full well that racism is still that hound of hell. So if I'm talking and you start coughing, I should just. Like hit the yeah. pause button on myself? Or I, I think I'll like feel it coming up and I'll be like, it's time to pause. <laughs> <laughs> or we get super hot. Yes, because yeah. I'm already getting just hot. Say, just say the word. Pause it. Cool. Okay. Cool. Are you ready? Is it start? Is it already recording? Yeah, I wanted to record oh, the voice. Great. Yeah, that's let's just like, go for it. That's yeah, really this is great because then it'll be like a music fade <laughs> in and it'll be like we've been talking this whole time. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> Welcome to now. Oh, whoops. Okay, that was a false start. Welcome to Now in Color, the podcast that brings those who have been erased in history back to life, giving them the voice and place in history that they deserve. I'm your host, Sandy Chang, and with me on Sound Watch is Scout Woodhouse. And I'm joined by Christopher Compton, who is a rando dude from Massachusetts. <laughs> in the past, he has written and directed plays and creative interactive storytelling experiences based on a fantasy universe he created when he was 12. He also likes to read history books and pretend to know what socialism means. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. I didn't realize you'd be reading my bio verbatim. Oh, I would yeah. have put it more in your voice or made it less silly. <laughs> I was wondering about what universe you created. I read that actually. Um, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite things. I haven't done much with it in a long time. That's not true. I'm writing a novel. But so when I was 12, so I was 12, and I was reading Lord of the Rings, like you do sometimes when you're that age. And I was playing a lot of um, Japanese RPGs, and I was just like starting to get into uh, fictional worlds, second worlds, and I wanted to make one of my own. So I started. And at first it was very, it was, I think at the time, the premise of the first plot was that I, I think I was a bunny and my friends were various types of like, one was an elephant and one, there were all these different types of animals. And I had to break them all out of like these boxes so that we could go fight a bubble monster. It was, I think the original, which sounds kind of immature for a 12 year old, I think. I don't know what 12 year olds think like typically, but then over time it kept um, <laughs> sort of growing and changing and evolving and so it's not, uh, yeah, so now it's a completely different thing. It's all about, like... Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's... Oh, wait, am I allowed to know this, or we're not allowed to say this? No, of course we are, yeah. Oh, it's okay. a thing, so I've done, like, a bunch of shows. So the way I do the show is I draw, like, a map of the world, whatever it is at that point in my life, and I tell, like, an anecdote, like a little story, like a little myth from the world or whatever, and then I just open up to questions from the audience, and they can ask, like, any proper noun. They, it's like I become... Uh, like a human Wikipedia page for my world. And so the audience is like, what's that person that you mentioned? Or what's that place? They're like, hey, there's that island over on the left. What's that all about? And then I just tell about it and facts about it and tell stories that happen there and just kind of like screw around for a couple hours. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really exhausting <laughs> to do. Um, I used to do it a lot and really like it. I didn't do that when I was 12. <laughs> well, I didn't do this when I was 12 either. Oh, okay. This, well. this style of telling started when I was in college, I think I started doing it. That's so cool. Yeah, it was a secret for 10 years. Why is uh, it a secret? You well, it was when I was younger. Per- I was an embarrassed teenager. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, just my, I liked the, the secret. There was, it's a, I, I lost a lot when I started sharing it. It was amazing to have a huge, like, growing 
Tolkien style world that was just for Christopher yeah. was a fun period. Yeah. And it's like, this is, that's what art's like. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I love it. Great. I love but, your but interactive storytelling thing when you were 12. Cause what I was doing when I was 12 was, uh, I used to write fan fiction for what? For Harry what? Potter. Harry Potter. Specifically. Are you a lot younger than me? Harry and Hermione. Um, cause I was obsessed and then Draco and Ginny cause I was then more obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> which, which books were out when you were 12? Like which were they like the pubescent books happening when you were 12? What was happening when I was 12? I don't know. Oh, I feel like the movies came out when I was okay. 12. Yeah. I think you're a little bit younger than me. Yeah. Um, that's okay. That's cool. What was your fan fiction? Are you proud of it? Have you looked oh, at it in a long my time? Gosh. No, I'm supposed to do a drunk reading of it one day. That's so great. And I'm really scared. And I, I promised my friend Josh I would do this. And I, it's been years. I promised him every year that you should, I would do it. You should do it like on a stage. Um, it will. I will die <laughs> of embarrassment. Yeah, that would be such a great. Well, you're I will a literally die. Perfor- performer. Yeah. These are things you need to destroy your uh, ego uh, bit by bit. Um, that has already happened. <laughs> In a place I shall not name, but I did it for two years. Um. <laughs> so ominous. <laughs> I just don't know if I should name the exact place. Yeah, no, I think then... that's a good... I think we've decided to use as few proper nouns today as we can in yes. regards to our lives and how we know yeah. each other. Yeah. yeah. But we met because we have a mutual love of history. That's right. And also of feelings. Of feelings. Of the theater. Yes, of the theatrical. That we've also discussed lately that neither of us really like theater. Yes. (laughs) I think that's secretly true of a lot of people that do theater. I think that's how you know the people who are like really good at it. They're like the very few people that actually like it. I don't know. Here's my my analysis of of (laughs) theater and what happens to people. So my theater career was probably like 10 years of like really caring about it. With the interactive storytelling. I did interactive storytelling. I was a a playwright and director. I started a theater company in Cape Cod after college. That was cool. I did like children's theater and stuff. I, I think what happened was being in a theater environment and making a show is an amazing social experience and really transformative for a lot of human beings including myself and i think what happens to a lot of people is you get into that and then that as like a community is amazing to you and you and so you just start loving that and you can't escape it even if the art form itself once you get down to it is not that thrilling to you I used to tell myself a lot of lies about theater being a populist art form. It's so not. It's the opposite (laughs) of it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, I don't know how I feel about theater right now. I'm just so disillusioned and sad all the time about it, but it's okay. I mean, because there was that, um, I don't remember even where it was, but there was like some yellow face that happened in like a regional theater Mm. company where this white lady played... Uh, like an Indian goddess or something. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what happened, mm-hmm. but it caused uproar, and I was just like, "Yeah, why am I doing this?" <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah. We- you promised me actually yesterday 
that you were going to spend all night thinking about the question of, because we were discussing making art yes. and how often we stop because we're not sure what is meaningful to us or if we're capable of making meaningful art. Oh. And I asked you very pretentiously, I said, oh what is meaningful to you? Like oh, we were like 14 years it. old. And then you said, you think you're a liar. Um, I did not think about it because I was, my mind was so blown at that moment because I was just like, I guess I shouldn't assign meaning to, like, who am I to assign that onto art? Does that make sense? Maybe, no, you are the only one. Yeah. That like, can, because you're you. Okay. Like, you shouldn't let me assign any meaning to things or anybody yeah. else. You're the only one that can, you're stuck being in your body with your perceptions. Oh my god. I'd have to decide. Well, I'll have to think about all of that. <laughs> There's gonna be some noise for a second. It'll be okay though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just I feel like uh I've been in a uh weirdly I don't insular community for a while. And I felt like if you didn't agree with what that community thought was art, then you were somehow not an artist. And that really bothered me for the past two years. And that's as vague as I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's in, in a lot of different types of fields and a lot of different ways. There's a way in which, like, there's so much power... Because no one has a clue anything what's going on ever in life. And so if you're the one person in the room that is pretending really hard that you know what's good and you know that person over there fucking sucks, that's so everyone's just like, oh, thank God someone knows. And so it's this I think it's this game where everyone in the room starts pretending they're that. It's like this like the arms race. To be yes. the one in the room that, like, has an opinion. Yeah. And everyone, you can tell that the ones that are winning the game are the most, like, children in their bellies. I hate Yeah. That. I hated it. Yeah. It's hard when you're unsure because you're kind of better than everybody if you don't know what's going on. But you don't win any <laughs> games that way. <laughs> so why did you stop doing theater? Or are you still doing theater? Um, so this brings us to our favorite topic, which is feelings. Oh, yes. Um, I found... <sighs> Sometimes when I do solo performances, I can genuinely enjoy myself in a way that makes them better. I found generally when I performed on a stage, I was a great rehearsal actor. And then the audience would show up and I was a very bad actor. Mm -hmm. And I was like very visibly nervous and like my voice would quake. And I just felt horrible the whole time. And I really enjoyed the community of rehearsing and I enjoyed the process of like learning a play and investigating it and playing around and being goofy. Yeah. Um, but I think I just wasn't right for that world. And it was even where that was me as an actor, as a director, where like I didn't have any, mm -hmm. there's so much, when you're an actor, you have to hold it into some amount. But as a director, I would just be like pacing around backstage, just like biting holes in my body oh my God. from stress and panic and whatever. And it, like, you know, I did that for years and was like, maybe this will pass. Maybe I'll get comfy. And I never did. And I was like, Christopher, you're just putting yourself in situations where you feel miserable. And maybe there's plenty of other yeah. worlds to go be in and not do this anymore. Wow. Yeah. You know what? You just gave me something else to think about. <laughs> My mind is constantly being blown. Well, I'm constantly in an existential crisis with acting and yeah. the industry, even though I just left school for it. It's fine. <laughs> well, I perceive you as a much more 
I think of myself as a quitter. It's in my nature. It's part of my identity. And I have, you know, many uh, parental figures in my life who are very disappointed in me eternally for that habit. But I think I, but it, you know, it's who I am. It's how I think people should live lives. You seem like a persevering person. Yeah, I feel like that's bad, though. I feel mm. like I'm too much of a, you know, like a perfectionist. And when I don't meet whatever weird standard I've placed on myself, then I like fall into deep holes of depression and anxiety. Like even in it was just school. And like now I can have the perspective that it was I was being crazy all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then I was just like, why am I so sad over one thing that someone said that I'm not good, you know? So and I and I keep wanting to prove them wrong. And then it becomes like this weird cycle of like, well, they're never going to be happy anyway, because that's the nature of this program. Yeah, I think (laughs) if yeah, if you're in any sort of field, whether it's the arts or like a helping field that requires empathy or desire to help people in some way, then you're then you're half then you're probably the sort of person who's very defenseless who like had some parent who you tried to like pour a lot of your life into or something and then it makes it i think it's very i think there are humans that can both be like empathetic and vulnerable and then but hold retain some core and i like i like to think that maybe i'm working toward being that person but i'm not yet and i never have been in the past do you feel that you maybe are that way like you I mean, I always thought you were, but I guess we haven't really talked that much outside of work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always, like, I've always heard about you Mm -hmm. around, and I'm like, that's (laughs) someone I feel like we would be friends. Like, even before what I'm doing now. (laughs) This is so, it's all so vague. Um, Someone could just Google this and be like, this is where they work. Sure. Um, Yeah, we can at least, this is our due diligence or whatever. When like other people would talk about you, I'd be like, I want to meet this person. I feel like we have so much in common because that's so nice of you to say. And he seems so creative and I like saw some of the work you've done. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, I feel like we very immediately when we met hit it off and we're chatting about uh, authority figures that had made us cry in the past, publicly and or privately. Yeah, yeah. no, totally. <laughs> I still, even though everyone's so nice, I still have like a verge of tears reaction. Like even when they say really nice things, I'm like, I don't believe you. I feel like something is wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's part of why I do what we do remotely yes. is so that I can just like cry at home and have my little panic attacks and I'm like in constant motion. I like work from the couch mm-hmm. and like, um, so now I work from my girlfriend's couch most of the time. And she has like one of those couches where like the cushions are like detachable from the couch. Like, you know, <laughs> and like, I'm like the Tasmanian devil, like by an hour within an hour of when I begin working, like every pillow is in like a corner yeah. of the room from <laughs> thrashing and spinning and, yeah, God. and it's because you can't do that in an, office. in an office. You have to like pretend the whole time because it's a weird. It's just the weird society yes. is terrible. It all is of them, so all human societies are awful, and they make you sit still and pretend that you're happy. Yeah, and that's to me that I would, I would, I, uh, I wouldn't cry often. I think it would be healthier if I did like get to subs, but I would go into the bathroom with just like radiating heat and sweating and like no thoughts in my head just sheer panic wow. and yeah working from home has helped that quite yeah. a bit because i can just 
live in my body and respond to my feelings a little better. Yeah, same. Um, I feel the exact same way. I'm so glad we found each other because I was like, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who just like hates working and everyone's so good at their jobs and they're all doing great things and making a lot of money. And I'm like, maybe I just need to go live in isolation somewhere (laughs) and not work ever again because I'm bad at it. Yeah, it's a I think it's a a particular problem in like the sort of liberal professional bubble of like metropolitan areas of like, you know, we're this sort of little class. um, And I think I think it's part of like a we were told we could do what we wanted and to pursue our passions. And so that if we're not doing something that makes us really happy, that we have thrown away some great big thing we were given. So we all pretend we nailed it. And we're all just always saying that we're, or just like not even just fucking not saying anything about how much we hate everything. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. And that, and that hurts everybody else to pretend that you're okay. Man, I could talk about this forever. Yeah, <laughs> well, this I is like, we can edit this out. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is basically all I think about when I work from home. I'm just like, what is life? And you keep keep blowing my mind with it. I have so many things to think about after this podcast now <laughs> that I can't discuss here. <laughs> um, can, well, hmm. we might... Should we take a pause? Should we take a break? We're going to take a break. So we took a break. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hot and we had to figure out some things, but we're back. So should we? Should we dive into? Dive into what we are here for. Our historical anecdote. This was such a good warm up. (laughs) So I want to talk about uh, these two people, um, Anthony and Mary Johnson, and they lived in Virginia and Maryland in the middle of the 1600s. So the thing about the 1600s is that, so I feel like we generally consider the 1600s to be super boring because we are taught that the 1600s are super boring. It's like we get like Jamestown and then the pilgrims and then, like, maybe you get, like, a little, like, oh, the Quakers and, like, religious tolerance or some shit. That and then colony that disappeared. Oh, you got, like, a Roanoke. Yes. Maybe a Roanoke, yeah. which is cool. That Roanoke is, cool. Is, is really cool. Um, and then it's, like, very suddenly, like, the French and Indian War and you're, like, in revolution yes. and stuff. And you skip over most of it. And I think that that is very on purpose. And I think it's very dangerous. Because the 1600s is when, like, all the most, like, insidious fucking shit is happening. Like, this is where you find, like, the rawest villainy and theft that, like, builds British America and that builds the United States. And you can't really talk about anything that happens in this period without, like, quickly realizing that everyone involved is a fucking monster. And I think I think they hide that from you because it's gross. And they don't want you to remember that just living is gross and everything nice was built on murder. And (laughs) (laughs) everything nice was built on murder. Yeah, I think that's a true (laughs) statement. (laughs) So like, so, okay, so you have like 1600. So like 100 years after like this period, uh, Thomas Jefferson is alive. um, And he loves to talk about 
how awful slavery is and like America's so many sins and whatever. And he always uh, he uses the same metaphor over and over in all these letters. Um, and one of them he says uh, he always used the, the metaphor of we have like the wolf by the ears. You heard that before? Someone's like tiger by the nose or whatever. Um, the, he says um, in one of the letters he says uh, as it is we have the he's talking about slavery. Mm-hmm. As it is we have the wolf by the ear and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. This sort of idea that like, oh, but if we like suddenly ended slavery all at once, it would be just too big of a catastrophe and we just kind of got to like keep it as it is. And he can sort of, in some sense, be forgiven for feeling that way because the game is already set up when Thomas Jefferson is born. Like, so Thomas Jefferson is... Uh, raping, stealing, slave-driving pirate king, but he is those things because he inherited yeah. a pirate kingdom. Um, and the game that he inherited was set up, and that pirate nation was established during the awful, awful, terrible, horrible 1600s. And Anthony and Mary Johnson uh, lived through the craziest part of that, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about them. Yes, let's get into come it. here today. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so Anthony Johnson, we know more about him because you know sexism, and so Anthony Johnson was he was born in Angola in um, Southwest Africa, sometime around sixteen hundred, and so at some point he's probably twenty ish. He's captured by fellow Africans and he's sold to Arabs who possibly sell him to the Portuguese. And then somebody eventually sells him to some British folks working for the Virginia Company. Um, And so like, you know, like you typically do, you can imagine this poor guy. He's getting carted from boat to boat and each group, each boat is being run by a completely different group of people speaking a whole new language that he probably does not recognize in any way. And he has no idea where, like, he probably does not have geography in his head. He doesn't have a world map in his head. He's just on the ocean, maybe, like, in a port from time to time. He doesn't know what it is. And so finally, after all this, in 1621, he gets off a boat called the James in Virginia, a place that he has almost certainly never heard of. Um, And he's put to work on a tobacco plantation owned by this guy called Edward Bennett. And this world that he has entered is completely insane and in total flux. So at this point in Virginia, the Europeans are fully at war with the local Indians and are for like a 50-year period Mm -hmm. of just like constant conflict. And so in 1622, just a a year after he shows up, um, there's this coordinated attempt by the Powhatan Confederacy to just drive all Europeans out of Virginia. And they do very well. So they managed to kill, in 1622, they kill a third of all Europeans in Virginia, which is only like 350 people, but still, it's fucking crazy. Um, And uh, so this plantation, Edward Bennett's plantation that Anthony Johnson is working on, is not spared. Um, In fact, so there's 57 people working on the plantation, including Anthony. Um, Anthony, Bennett himself, and three other dudes are the only survivors of this 57-person plantation oh um, in the Powhatan's attack. So there's sort of like, I guess, 
like a silver lining of sorts in this for Anthony. I'm sure he probably didn't care very much for all the people that were killed. Um, and so also, uh, so in order to replace all of this lost labor, Bennett starts buying um, a ton of human beings. And uh, one of them is this woman, Mary. We know very little about her origins, um, but Anthony and Mary meet. And we know sometime within the next 10 years, could be the next day for all we know, mm-hmm. uh, they get married and they stay married for the rest of their lives. Um, and so they're living on Bennett's plantation. They're working together, and they work and work and work. And sometime between 1625 and 1640, their period of work ends. Um, Anthony and Mary were never understood to be slaves for life. At in this time, that is a concept that is just starting to be conceived of is the idea of a person who is born and dies a slave. These two came over as indentured servants with a set period of work. And in sometime in this period, their time is up and they're free. They're two free Africans living in Virginia in the 1640s. Um, And so they, uh, they move to the Eastern shore of Virginia and they buy an estate, 250 acres, which is not bad. And they end up having four kids over a period of time. Um, they develop a really great reputation in their communities. We have, like, court records of they're really hard workers and everybody really likes them, whatever. Um, they're able to freely and successfully interact with their government, um, which is really astounding. Um, and there's no reason to believe that they were unusual as being able to be Africans that can do this. Um, we record in 1653, there's a fire on their farm. And so they go to the government. They're like, hey, we had a fire. Can we get a tax break? And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys are great. Sure. And so they give them a couple years off and they're taxing their daughters at the time because they tax you by like per person at that time. And so their daughters are exempted from tax for the rest of their lives. Um, and so eventually they're so successful that they actually uh, buy some human beings of their own. Um, and these are by and large like the real deal slaves, like slaves for life. By this point, 1655, that's becoming a thing that you can do. Um, and so what's especially remarkable, so in 1655, um, he owns this man called John Kaser, who's from Africa. Um, and so Kaser decides that he doesn't want to work for Anthony Johnson anymore. Um, he feels he's been mistreated and he goes to work for a white man called Robert Parker. And so Anthony Johnson... An African living in Virginia in 1655 is able to sue a white man for ownership of his slave and wins. This is insane. Um, they are this powerful family. And like you have to like it's so amazing to think of how, what a survivor you have to be, like the type of person you would have to be to do that, to be picked up out of your home, brought to an insane world, an completely insane place that you don't speak the language, you don't know the people, you're given the name Anthony, which is certainly not the name he was born with in Angola, (laughs) and he just owns it, and he's, before he knows he's a fucking slave owner, and is like, getting tax breaks, and like, lobbying for himself in the government. Um, So, as you might imagine, things are about to take a terribly hard turn for the Johnson family. Um, but before we talk about that, um, I think there's a really interesting sort of side point you've made about Anthony Johnson um, and his historical legacy. So uh, this period in the Johnson's life, particularly the John Kaser case, um, has made Anthony Johnson a favorite mascot of the alt-right. Um, so there's a lot of like neo-Confederate websites that really love to produce and share memes about Anthony Johnson 
Um, the memes about him are mostly lies. So the most common one is a picture of a completely unrelated man um, that they say is Anthony Johnson. And they say that the first slave owner in U.S. history or American history was a black man, which is a lie. He was a slave owner. And that's interesting and weird. Um, but he wasn't the first. That's completely unfounded. Um, and they often go with like these long lists of facts that are like sometimes kind of true, um, but usually very distorted. And they try to paint this completely ridiculous picture of um, a history of slavery that was invented, propagated, and enjoyed by black people. Um, And I think, so these things are all uh, incorrect, but I think that they're useful to look at and think about and think about the way that these people are using history and misrepresenting history because they turn us back to 1655 and what's about to happen to this family. So up through 1655, it's not, we should not imagine Anthony Johnson, um, Anthony and Mary living as equals to the European neighbors. Um, but he does have a really surprising amount of economic and political rights, which when I first learned about him was so weird and surprising to me. And the reason that this is possible is because in Virginia in 1655, European racism is still working itself out. Like, they're still figuring out what they believe and how they want their world to work. So at this point, Europe is, like, really new to the racism game. Um, So, like, you know, it's like the Greeks and the Romans um, have no conception of race. They do not think of themselves as European or white. They think of themselves as Greek and Roman. So, like, Homer says Achilles has blonde hair and Odysseus has a black face. Um, Herodotus writes admiringly about Africans without any self-consciousness, defensiveness. Um, it's just, it's the, the, this, these ideas of categories that we have don't exist yet. Um, generally speaking, looking at like grand, the grand scope of history, the pattern is that empires develop theories about race and ethnicity once they find a really good profit model that involves stealing systematically from a group of people. Um, so the real pioneers, actually, of what ends up becoming, after a lot of work from the Europeans, like our modern sense of race that we're fucking stuck with now, um, is done by the Arab empires, who are the big slave drivers before the Europeans take over the business. Um, so what's interesting is the Arabs and the Muslim empires are trading in both Africans and Eastern Europeans. Do we take a break? Keep yeah, going. Keep going. <laughs> Um, so the, the Arab empires and the Muslim empires are trading in both Africans and Eastern Europeans. Mm-hmm. So their race theories um, comprehensively involve both white people and black people and um, have sort of like these, you know, mythological um, pseudoscientific reasons for why they are less human than Arabs and Persians. Um, actually, uh, a cool thing that I learned uh, reading about this is... <laughs> you're good. Um, a cool thing that I've been reading about this is that the word slave comes from the word Slav, um, which is interesting to me. Um, so, But it's when in like the 1400s, so Europeans get into the game in like the 1400s, uh, Portugal kind of leads the charge. Um, they start realizing um, these Arab empires are making a ton of money selling human beings um, and Portugal tries to get in on it. Um, and it's almost at the exact same time, it's like within 10 years that they start developing and adopting and making their own these theories about race and what race means and how to conceive the world in terms of race. Um, I think the logic of it is pretty clear. It's like if you're every day having to 
um, force people to do things and beat them and take them away from their families. Like, you have to stop thinking of them as humans. You have to shut down parts of you that want to care about it. Um, and that quickly works its way up to academics and academics who go to the merchants and are like, hey, I have this cool idea that the people that you're working with aren't human beings. And then suddenly you give that person a lot of money to keep writing books about it. And you create industries and empires based around making these ideas make be more coherent and make more sense. Um, but so what ends up really setting European racism apart and making it that incredibly coherent practicable type of racism that allows them to steal the entire world's wealth is uh, colonizing America um, because that is a completely unprecedented time and place in human history. Um, so, I mean, in these primordial days of North American colonization, you have kind of a true melting pot, something much more like a melting pot than you have, you know, when we say we have it in the early 1900s. Um, you have Africans and Europeans and indigenous Americans um, living very intimately with each other um, and exchanging people and ideas and cultures and surviving next to each other. Um, and what's particularly amazing about it is because of the huge waves of disease that strike the Americas, most of the tribes that and political organizations that white people are interacting with when they get to the New World or to North America, New World is a dumb term, um, are new. Like a lot of them are just like survivors, folks who are immune to this and that, coming together and forming completely new um, political organizations. So nobody is there with like a history. Nobody is there with the sort of institutions that can help them win. Um, and it's from this really confusing time that our modern sense of race starts to emerge and allows theft and enslavement on a completely unprecedented scale um, and on which Europe's power is built. Like when we think of like, why is it that Europe was so like more powerful than everybody else? It's because of the Americas, because they just suck so much money and resources out of the Americas that just catapults them ahead of the Muslim world um, and of everybody else and sort of gets that sort of snowball rolling. Um, so when the Johnsons arrive in North America, um, these concepts are completely academic. There's like a lot of dudes writing books about what Africans are in Europe um, and of course like what Native Americans are. Um, but it's all, it's not cohering the way we'd expect it to a hundred years later. So one of my favorite examples of, of how we can see this is there's this woman, um, Nell Butler. Uh, she's an Irish woman, a free woman uh, living in Maryland. And she falls in love with this man, Charles, who's from Africa, who's a slave. And uh, she wants to marry him. And she is allowed to, with the way it works at the time, is if you are a free white woman and you marry an uh, African slave, you basically become legally African. So she knows that if she marries this man, she will become owned by Charles's owner and that their children together will be owned by that same person and his descendants. And she decides to do it anyway. And so this woman basically is is allowed to become a new political type of thing. And in fact, their kids for generations, um, their kids remain enslaved in Maryland. Um, and of course, very soon that will become impossible. Like the the ability to preserve like the sanctity of being a white person becomes very important very quickly. But these are the types of lessons they're learning as they go. So for example, Nell Butler is just this poor 
Irish uh, Irish immigrant, um, the day before the wedding, Lord Baltimore, who's the governor of Maryland, comes to her personally and is like, don't do this. Like, he can sort of sense that this is not good for, for like, this conception of race that's coming coming together. Um, and just, I think, two years after the wedding, they changed the laws to just make that type of marriage impossible. Um, but they're sort of learning, this is like, that's why North America is so important to racism working on its kinks, because there's practical things happening and you have to figure out how to make, how to like keep each race uh, separate, basically. Um, so the Johnsons will live to see all of this worked out and incredibly rapid pivot in their lifetimes. So over the course of like 30 years and really in practice, like in one decade, their world is going to turn to hell. So trouble starts in 1657 for reasons that might be unrelated to these larger trends, but it's hard to say. So they're neighbors with this incredible villain. Um, There's this guy named Edmund Scarborough who is worth reading about in his own right. Um, He's this like ruthless murdering con artist um, and he makes it his life work to build a kingdom for himself in Virginia. He gets to be known as King Scarborough later in his life. Um, and so he's a neighbor of the Johnsons and he uses this pretty like simple scam to get the government to hand over to Scarborough um, nearly half of their estate. Uh, basically he forges a few documents and the Johnsons are illiterate and so they can't contest it. They don't really know what's going on. Um, and so they lose like half of their estate. And it might be because of this. We don't really know exactly why. But soon after this, um, they move from Virginia uh, to Maryland. Um, and uh, they move up to the move to Maryland. Uh, one fine detail is so when they move up, they buy a new estate and uh, they name it Tony's Vineyard. Which is really adorable. I think like this. I love little details. Yeah. Like people are just people, and they want to yeah. name things they own cute things. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> so they got Tony's Vineyard, and they're in Maryland. Um, and what's happening in Maryland right now at this time is really cool. So um, for whatever reason, um, beyond my historical knowledge, um, there is becoming a huge accumulation of Africans in Maryland, both enslaved and free, and it's getting really common to see expressions of Africanness in Maryland as you go around as normally as you would see expressions of Europeanness. Um, so they're speaking African languages freely. They're praying to African gods. They're participating in African funeral rituals. They're ritually scarring themselves. They're filing their teeth. They're performing African music. And like, you know, right interspersed with, right next to people praying to European gods and speaking European languages and playing European music. And for a moment, you can almost sort of see or imagine an alternate American history where you see these cultures just doing their thing next to each other and their people are adopting different things for themselves and they're both allowed to be prominent and survive and the heritage of Africa is allowed to come over. Um, And of course, that doesn't happen. So it's, what happens instead is, of course, the Europeans start becoming really afraid, which uh, we're very good at as a people. Um, they're afraid of African solidarity, of slave rebellions, um, because like I said, like there is weird amounts of equality here, but it's, uh, predominantly slaves are African at this time. They're not exclusively. Um, and they're afraid of having to share 
America of having to share the resources here that both of them are, it should be said, together stealing from uh, indigenous folks. Uh, so at an incredible rate, like it's really unbelievable, you start seeing new laws designed to end what they're seeing, to end the society that allows both of these people to live full lives. Um, so you see quickly um, the Maryland Assembly um, passes laws to forbid Africans from assembling in groups of larger than four. Um, you see uh, slave patrols established, which will become like you know part of Southern iconography through the Civil War and still afterwards. Um, just white men whose job it is just to patrol roads and monitor Africans um, and to harass them, whether they are free or enslaved, make sure they're not runaways, bring runaways back, newly enslaved people they think they can get away with doing that too. Um, and in this period, it also becomes the case that masters... Um, or slave owners are not held liable if a slave is killed from excessive punishment. So you start seeing things like toes getting cut off of repeat runaways, men getting castrated commonly, um, and otherwise sort of more and more forms of elaborate torture that by the 1800s like become very sophisticated and, and grotesque. Um, so there's this uh, planter named William Byrd. We have a lot of his letters and diaries from this time. Um, and sort of to reflect this, I guess... Um, we have this quote from him uh, saying, um, quote, uh, an unhappy effect of owning many Negroes is the necessity of being severe. Numbers make them insolent. And then foul means must do what fair will not. And there is this, there starts to be this ideology of we, of a we that needs to be cruel to them to maintain something important. And you start seeing it emerge very suddenly at this time. Um, also an important part of this is not only to keep um, Africans enslaved and obedient and afraid, um, but also to make sure that um, Africans and Europeans live separately from each other. You can't have people caring about the people that you're trying to oppress. Um, so you see different types of creative laws to get them separated. So in 1661, um, Maryland is the first place in uh, British America that makes it explicitly illegal for Africans and Europeans to get married to each other. Um, in 1680, you see this law that makes it um, punishable by whipping for any African, regardless of their uh, service status, to strike or even to threaten a European. So what you start seeing, obviously, very quickly is Europeans able to mock and beat and steal from Africans with impunity. And really, I think that reveals, like, what this is all about. Like, you can just take, you can just dominate, and you can never have to fear poverty because there's a group of people you can always take things from. And you can see quickly how even Europeans that don't own slaves and never will start getting really addicted to this idea. Um, and in fact, you see in 1705, you see this law in Virginia that makes it um, permissible for local governments to steal livestock from Africans to give it to poor Europeans as an early form of welfare. Um, and so in 1723, you see kind of the final blow. Um, so in Virginia, um, even uh, free Africans lose the right to bear arms, to hold office, uh, to vote, to employ white people. And sort of in his proclamation to justify this, uh, the governor of Virginia um, sort of like states this as, as the reasoning behind it. Uh, he declares that only by fixing, quote, 
uh, a perpetual brand upon free Negroes and, and mulattoes by excluding them from that great privilege of a free, free man, could they be taught that a distinction ought to be made between their offspring and the descendants of an Englishman with whom they were, never were to be accounted equal? So while all this is happening, while this tremendous transformation of society is happening, um, the Johnsons themselves are starting to fade into obscurity. Um, we don't know a ton about what happens to them in the next 60 years. We know a little bit. Um, there's kind of a rule of history that if you want your life to be recorded, um, you should interact with your government as much as possible. And obviously there are a lot of reasons in this time where the type of the frequency of interactions they had in the 50s, they would stop they would not feel as much trust for the government and the ability to go interact with them, ask for things, take people to court, what have you. Um, we do know that Anthony passes away in 1670. Um, he, at the time, he still owns some land in Virginia from that original estate. Uh, but the Virginia government seizes the land um, and they write Mary a letter saying uh, they took the land because, quote, he was a Negro and by consequence an alien. Um, and you see this tremendous change from 15 years ago when he could sue for a right to his slave, of all things. Um, now he has no right to land 15 years later. Um, uh, Anthony and Mary's children uh, seem to live pretty unremarkable lives. Uh, they have a grandson named John Jr. Uh, he manages to cobble together a 44-acre farm, which is less than a fifth of the size of his grandfather's. Um, it's kind of touching. He names it Angola. Um, but you have to imagine like him as a little kid, like hearing his grandfather's stories of this completely unimaginable land that he came from and that that had meaning to him and he names his farm that. Um, but John Jr., as far as we can tell, lives a pretty isolated life. Um, it doesn't seem that he got married, doesn't seem they had any kids. And by 1730 or thereabouts, the Johnsons disappear from history entirely and have probably all died off. Um, so as I said before, uh, Anthony Johnson, uh, was never the equal of his European neighbors at any point. I mean, of course, to begin with, um, virtually all of them would have come here voluntarily, and of course, Anthony did not. Um, but we also know that he was forced to pay extra taxes because he was African. I'm actually not clear on this myself personally, but I believe the taxes he's getting exempted from, at least some of them are only taxes he has on him from being African. Um, he certainly, we have a lot of records of this, um, if he had committed any crimes, which we have no record of him doing, um, he would have been punished more severely than any European, like by statute. Um, and one imagines that he faced day to day disrespect. Um, but there was a period where in these amorphous and confused days of early British America, an African family could rise to prominence and be a, a normal, successful family. By the time Thomas Jefferson is born in 1743, the Johnsons are dead and all that they had built had been taken from them. And the rules of race in British America and increasingly in everywhere Europeans were touching were very unambiguous. They had learned what they wanted to do to the world. And a new sort of culture that the world had not seen before was emerging in these Chesapeake colonies in Maryland and Virginia. It was a distinct culture from the one in England, and it was built on the idea that there was a thing called a white person, 
and that person has the legal and economic and social lordship over their neighbors, um, where they have pride in being white, and where the threats, where threats against their whiteness, which is the mere existence of other cultures, can result very quickly in new laws that give you the power to bully your neighbor, to mutilate them, to take their stuff from them. From a very complicated system of servants and slaves and landowners that was not tied directly to race, came a society where virtually all white people were free and virtually all black people were slaves. Um, we have, um, testifying to this very dramatic change, we have a quote from a uh, man living in Virginia at the time who says that uh, these two words, Negro and slave, have by custom grown homogenous and convertible. Um, and this system is uh, my inheritance. So uh, if you're listening to the podcast, um, I imagine I sound white. I don't know, but I am a white person. So I am, if you go back, you know, my ancestors came from Greece and from France and from England, but I don't belong in Greece or France or England. I don't, my family doesn't keep Greek customs or French customs or anything like that. I am this thing that was created in this time, this brand new invented thing. Um, I am a white American. Um, that's the identity that I have. And I think that's what draws me to this period. I think it's really interesting to tell it from the perspective of the Johnsons. Um, but really, I think what's fascinating is like to, to, for me to investigate what it means to be me means to go back to this period and see the reasons why I was invented and what they wanted and designed to hand over to me and what they have successfully done. Um, I mean, to think of how enduring this project is, like what's amazing is so, as I mentioned in 1661, there is the first English law in British America that prevents um, uh, white people from marrying black people. And that that idea that that can be a law remains completely valid for more than 300 years that just like not a long time ago my parents were had puberty happen to them already in 1967 we have loving v virginia that is finally like we can't we don't allow this anymore in this country um and of course most of what they built is still entirely correct the fact that the people i'm related to still own the vast majority of the world's wealth um, is a result of the theft that began this time. Incredible, successful global theft. Um, and I think there is a lot uh, for anybody to take away from the story of Anthony Johnson. Um, I think, firstly, it's amazing. Like, we, one needs to be aware of how quickly governments can start acting against a group of people and shipping them of their rights. It is not impossible to imagine that we are about to live through a period that is um, similar to the one that I've been talking about here. I don't know. I don't know if that's a dramatic thing to say. We shall see. Um, second, I think uh, we can understand why Anthony Johnson uh, makes for a really shitty mascot for neo-Confederates. Um, especially if their argument is that the system was fine for everybody, that everyone was kind of into it. Um, but I think thirdly, in my interpretation anyway, I think the story kind of teaches us that like winning these kind of 
our academic points against the alt-right doesn't really matter a lot. Like, I don't think that what motivated the people to create whiteness in this period, nor what motivates the real drivers of racism in our current age, is a sincere belief in racist ideologies. I think what motivates racism is the desire to steal shit from other people um, en masse. I think they're the, the fever dream of mass looting that I can never be destitute because there's someone I can just take their shit from if it gets bad enough for me. And I think this stretches from the Nazi idea of murdering millions of people and making piles of gold from the filling of their teeth. And I think it includes the American tradition of calling vast swaths of immigrants one at a time. Southern Europeans, East Asians, South Americans, calling them illegal and excluding them from our constitution so that you can steal their wages. Um, You can make them work as slaves or as near slaves and take as much of what they've made as you want. Um, Racism, I think, is and has always been a tool for thieves. And to fight it, I think, I don't really fucking know, but I think first, like, I think if I were, I've kind of forced myself to make points here, which is maybe kind of productive, to do from a story like this, but here's my attempt, is I think the, like a, a good three-point plan for how to start to deal with this is, number one, don't be a thief yourself. Um, and I think maybe a lot of us might be that don't think we are. Um, second, I think we have to be clear on who the thieves are, who really profits from racism, and it's not... I think there is an emotional value to people who are financially insecure, but I don't think they're really the winners of the game. Um, and I think it's important to be clear on that. And I think third, the action is to disempower the thieves and to empower those they are stealing from. And I think looking at the violence of this period uh, and the violence that is the core of what's happening here um, demands of us that when we empower people that we do it in tangible ways that writing it down on a piece of paper in a law is insufficient because that law will change um that they need housing and they need wealth and they need tangible safety that they believe in um so that they can be the first line of defense for themselves um yeah i don't know if that's too at the end there if that's too like fucking preachy or whatever i don't want to pretend that i know anything about solving any problems um, but that's, yeah, so that's like the, uh, that's the story of the Johnsons. <laughs> I'm just speechless because that was incredible. And I did not read through the notes you sent me. So I was like completely just like enthralled by this story because I had no idea about any of this. So I'm glad. Like, for, yeah, last night you were like, I think I don't want to read it. I think I just want to enjoy it. And I was like, yeah, buckle in, pal. Yeah, that was a roller coaster of emotions. It's an I, Yeah, I just had no idea that that was a thing. It was someone's joining us, but it's okay. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's an amazing time. It's really, yeah. everything is very, I think, I think it's a very clarifying period to look at because everything's fucking right out in the open. Yeah. Like people are telling, people are doing things in the most direct way possible and writing down why they're doing them. And there's no ideology yet to mask it or to make it polite or to make it civil. It's just, we want to take some shit from some people, you know? Yeah. 
And no one ever talks about this. Like, no one has told me about it. I don't remember ever reading about this anywhere. Um, like you said earlier, it's just like, oh, some people from Europe came, the pilgrims, mm -hmm. and then... I think the Revolutionary War, the Boston Tea Party, Revolutionary War, Hamilton stuff happens. <laughs> and it seems like really cool now because like Hamilton's a great musical. I love it. It know? is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little embarrassed that I love it as much as I do, but I, yeah. it's a great, it's great. Yeah. So it makes it seem like it's a wonderful time with that musical. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, the, I think that the danger is, um, is like that, I think you just start thinking that it was all like when you get this idea that history is just this progression forward mm -hmm. and that like before 1865 there was always slavery everywhere and just everyone was fucking doing it and it always kind of looked like what we were doing um and i think that makes it easy to not be afraid for the future <laughs> like i think it makes it feel like it couldn't happen again because we're beyond it but no it was built kind of recently and like you know there's still plenty it's still kind of in place um, and we can build new and worse things as soon as we want to. Even though it was sad, but, you know, we have to know. We have to know these yeah. things. You can do some of the teacher strike one. How was that? Was that fun? Was that happier? Um, no, that was also sad. I I think I need to find a, a positive <laughs> figure in history now. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, coming here and sharing this amazing story. And I hope you come back. Thank you so much for having me uh, whenever you want. Yay! Let's cool. do it. And let's survive a, the zombie apocalypse. Joy. Yeah. This has inspired me to survive. <laughs> Maybe By a not. shotgun? Yeah. yeah. All right. Baseball bat, machete. Um, cool. I think that's it. I don't have a sign off yet. <laughs> oh, what's you mean? You need one. This is when you need a sign off. Maybe your sign off is something happening.